Today we're going to be in 1 Peter 1. Now, in chapter 1, or the first 12 verses, we saw that, uh, and I didn't want to rush through it, and I really wanted to divide the chapter in half, and I'll explain to you why. Uh, we saw our strong foundation and encouragement regarding our faith. Uh, we know that we're strangers and pilgrims in this world, and with that perspective, we live and we love, and we know that Jesus Christ is our living hope. We have a living hope. We don't hope as the world hopes, but we hope with something, with a foundation. There's something behind that. It's backed by something. With that understanding, what do we do? How do we live in light of these facts? Well, Peter continues in verse 13, and he says, therefore, that's a connecting verse. So we start with the foundation, therefore, this is how we live. And today we'll be looking at living lives of holiness, reverence, and dependence. So starting with verse 13, 1 Peter 1, 13. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So let's start with holiness. There's a lot of misconceptions about holiness, and even among Christians that maybe if they haven't been saved that long or don't have a great grasp of the Bible, they look at that word holiness and say automatically that's not me, right? We have a picture in our mind. Uh, sometimes the picture is uh, cloistered, right? A cloistered group of religious men or women away from society. Maybe we think that, uh, and, and you've seen this over the years, certain groups would, if they felt that their flesh was rising up, they would literally whip themselves to try to tame their flesh, to try to beat the flesh out of them. It doesn't work like that. Not necessarily a vow of poverty, not necessarily a vow of silence, which would be very hard for me, so I'm not going to go there. But holiness is being consecrated. You didn't have to laugh that loud about that. <laughs> it means to be set apart, and we'll come back to that. In other words, holiness we start to look, we were set apart from the world. We start to be set apart from our fleshly nature. We want to please God. So over time, we look more like Jesus than we do the world. We look more like Jesus than the, than the, the, the flesh and, and the sins of our old life. So we'll come back to that. Verse 1, or the first part, he says, Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, <clears throat> that was a cultural uh, you know, a lot of things, if you go read the scripture, you go back into the history books and, and see what it says, it makes more sense, the cultural aspects. So in those days, and even today in the Middle Eastern communities, in uh, the hot climates, the men would wear robes, right? Like we wear pants or shorts. Well, they would wear robes. And their robes uh, would be a hindrance because they'd be below the knees. So if they had to run or they had to prepare themselves or work, what they would do is they'd gird up their loins. And what it meant was to pick the robe up and pick it up really above the knee and then tie it with some type of uh, belt or sash or something like that. So gird up the loins. But he says, gird up the loins of your mind. This is a mental and spiritual preparedness. Now, for what? Well, we need to be prepared mentally and spiritually, and uh, we hope that the spiritual aspect really spills over into the mental aspect so we have the right head on our shoulders. I mean, there could be a catastrophe waiting around the corner or some type of trial or maybe a service. Maybe the Lord is calling some of you here to higher service, so be prepared. 
right? Prepare your mind for what God has for you. And if we, if we don't feed our mind and we're not getting our spiritual exercise, then oftentimes we're not prepared for when something happens. The second part of this is be sober. Not necessarily uh, when we think about alcohol, but be sober-minded, right? This is a, a mindset. It's a frame of mind. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Don't let anything intoxicate or distract or dull your spiritual senses. Have self-control so that the world doesn't get a hold of you and lull you into a false sense of security. There's a proverb, 2433, which is really a, a, a proverb in the physical realm, but I'd like to make a spiritual application. It's very interesting. The Proverbs 2433 says, A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. So your poverty will come like a prowler and your want like an armed man. Well, it's a picture of slothfulness or laziness. But we can also be spiritually lazy. We can be diligent with our bodies. We could be hard workers and completely lazy when it comes to the, thing of, the things of God. You know? and, and I look at you know, the enemy, the, the demonic uh, horde, is probably not going to get most of us to believe there is no God. I mean, we're pretty set on that. They're probably not going to get us to believe that there is no hell. But what they probably can do is convince us that there's time to serve. There's time to go out there and tell your loved one about the Lord. There's time to, uh, you know, mature in the things of God. Hey, no problem. That one usually works much better than the first two. That's spiritual sloth. And three, he says, rest your hope fully on the grace brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Revelation 22, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So a life of holiness has its rewards. And the question is, what is our hope rested upon? Where is our trust? Is it divided? Right? And often when something comes down the line that we're not prepared for, we can see based on what, how we react, where our spiritual life has been all this time. Hope in the Webster's Dictionary, number one, is reliance. Number two, is a desire accompanied by expectation. Part of hope is, is you know, it's... it's you expect something to happen. That's why you hope, right? And there's some crossover between hope and trust. There's an expression called hope against hope, which is really to continue having hope, although it seems baseless. But ours is a living hope. We believe in a living Savior. We don't uh, visit the tombs of our religious leader like some do. Our tomb of our religious leader, our head, is empty. So we, we serve a living God, His living Word, and a living Savior. And these are the responses, really, uh, to what we've learned in the first part of the chapter. So verse 14, he says, obedient, As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. This is also a part of holiness. Number one, obedience to God and nonconformism to the world. And there's safety in that. God wrote the book. He wrote, there was a commercial that says, we wrote the book. Well, when it comes to the human uh, experience, the human body, the human, uh, you know, pilgrimage. God wrote the book. It's called the Bible, right? And what's funny is those that are rebellious are all conformists. Now, if anybody here doesn't know the Lord and you take offense to that because your primary objective as somebody who's in rebellion, a rebel, is to not be a conformist. I'll never conform. But what they really are are non-conforming conformists. Why? 
because they're all conforming to what I want to do. See, I'm going to take off the shackles of God's word. I'm, going to, I'm not going to obey the law. I'm not going to wear my seatbelt. I'm not going to do anything that anybody tells me to do. I'm going to do whatever I want. What you're saying is put the shackles on because you're going to prison. You're a prisoner to your own slave, slavery and, uh, of desires. You know, I look at the 60s. 60s uh, was, a, you know, some of you have lived through the 60s. You know, I wasn't but a few years old. Uh, but the 60s was a time of free love, right? Cast off all restraint, all morality, free drugs, man. Pass the pipe. Everybody's taking a toke, right? That's what the 60s, a lot of the 60s was about. But what is the dark side of the 60s? And I'm sure you know many of these things, right? The dark side of free love, free sex, free drugs, do whatever you want, right? Here's the dark side. Venereal diseases, a, a spike in abortions, addiction clinics popping up everywhere. There's guys who are 60 now who are just fried from all the drugs that they did. ODs left and right. ODs of some famous people out in Hollywood, right? Unwanted babies, broken relationships, divorce, that's the dark side of the 60s, right? And we're, some of us have been, unfortunately, as children, a product of, of receiving the dark side of what our parents handed us. So it's not cool to be a rebel. It isn't cool to be a conformist to our own flesh. All it does is hurt us and damage us, right? We're not to be conformed to the world and its lust, but we're supposed to have the world be transformed, Right? And to, to change their minds, to have their eyes open to spiritual things. We have a new nature. And the, even the person who um, has a, what, what we call in a worldly term is addiction, you know, well, when they're in the world and they're in the flesh, they have to put the needle in their arm. They have to. They're slaves to their flesh. But when a person becomes born again, they say, I don't have to do this anymore. I have a new nature. I have a spiritual nature. I can choose to walk in the spirit. It's going to be hard. It's going to be a fight, but I can still do that. Peter says, though, it was done in ignorance, not knowing spiritual things. But now we know better. As those indwelled with the Holy Spirit, we're expected to behave differently. Why? Because if we really are indwelled with the Holy Spirit, if you are a believer, God seals you with a part of him. He dwelt, indwelled in the Holy Spirit. So you have this dunamis, this power inside of you. It's a, it's a dynamo, probably where the word dynamo comes from. And how can we continue to stay in that old life and feed the old man? The funny thing is he says you did this in your ignorance. The Greek word is agnoia, where we get the word agnostic from. And literally it means without knowledge. And we can have a lot of fun with that one. But let me just make a serious application. I talk to those who are very bright, probably a lot smarter than me, better memories than me, and they refuse to believe in God. They're atheists. So even, even though they're incredibly smart, because they have a prejudice or a bias against the possibility of a, of a d divine creator, right? They dance around the issue and try to talk about the human race and, and, and things about the, uh, our bodies through things that are really fairy tales because they have a bias towards the things of God. So they are without knowledge. Now, of course, I know that in their understanding, they say it means, well, no one's proved it to me yet. Read the book. Uh, the Creator Beyond Time and Space by Mark Eastman. Excellent book. Excellent book. Verse 15. He says, But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in your conduct. Because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Peter here is quoting Leviticus 11. 
Holiness. Again, let's come back to that. Do we hear it that more anymore in our society? Uh, do we talk about it even as believers? Do we, I need to be more holy. Does that come into conversation? Sanctification, right? Or has, again, holiness is to be more set apart from our fleshly nature, right? To be more uh, moving towards the things of God and trying to, you know, that sin nature, trying to uh, deal with it and, and kind of not feed it. But I wonder sometimes if the word dysfunction has replaced sin. I mean, I talk to other believers and um, there are things that are just outright sin, but we'll call them dysfunction. Well, that means something's not functioning properly. I get it. But it's a nice word, dysfunction, and it implies it's not my fault. It's my external surroundings. Uh, sin implies responsibility. We have to take responsibility. Uh, not my fault. I've, I've heard, you know, it's this thing now, the genes are blamed for everything. <laughs> no matter what your sin is, you blame your genes. Right? Now, we used to blame our parents. No matter what my problem is, it's because of my upbringing. I didn't get a train set at 10 years old, so I had to murder those 10 people. You know, and it's not mu that much of a stretch. You've got to hear some of these defenses. Um, even blaming our lives on poverty. You know, three quarters of the world outside of the United States lives on what we would consider a pov poverty, poverty level. Many of those folks are very good believers. They're devoted to the Lord and have a relationship. So I think it's actually insulting to say that poverty leads naturally to uh, things and crimes and, and we, can't, we can't get away from that. I think that's insulting, right? Holiness. We say in Calvary Chapel, and there's even a song written about it, come as you are, right? Come as you are, man. Coming off the streets. Uh, Chuck Smith uh, in the 60s had all the hippies come in. They had bare feet and... Uh, they dressed really, um, you know, not, not well to come into church. But he said, I don't care. Come as you are. I want them to hear the gospel. However, after 10 years, don't stay that way. You know what I'm saying? Come as you are, but don't stay that way after 10 years. Change. Allow God to change and mold you. And that's part of that sanctification pro uh, process. Here, let me give you a real-life benefit to this whole sanctification holiness idea. Okay? For you, your benefit. Um, if I came to, to Christ and I never changed, none of you would stay here, trust me. So in a real life benefit, God did do some things and it was, some of it was painful, but um, I, I don't regret any of it. I didn't want to stay in my old state. And I cringe sometimes when somebody from my past comes up and I, I don't know what they're going to say, right? <laughs> it can be a little uncomfortable. You know, the last point on holiness. Don't get the erroneous impression that any pastor... Is, uh, is flawless, all right, outside of the pulpit. It's just not, it, we're sinners just like everybody else, but we strive uh, for holiness. You know, we, we want to be set apart. We want to honor God. You know, we, and check it out, we also want to honor man. What does that mean? Well, it means that we all have, uh, if I say, who are your loved ones? In your mind, your children pop up, your spouses, uh, hopefully your pastor, uh, you know, neighbors, coworkers, right? I love these people. This is my group of people that I love. Now, when they crash and burn because they don't know the Lord, where are you, right? We want to be holy. We want to be set apart so that when the person that we love is at rock bottom, that we can help them. We can lend a hand. We can help lift them up. And I've seen it in my life, and I'm sure you have with yours. They won't tell their other friends that they're coming to you, but they know that you're a source of strength. 
You're a source of holiness. You're a source of encouragement. So they may secretly come to you like Nicodemus did to Jesus at night in John chapter 3 because we reflect Christ. So the more we are sanctified, the more we are holy, when our loved ones crash and burn, we can help them pick up the pieces and hopefully teach them an object lesson about Christ in the interim. Now, if we look like the world, if we look like their carnal fleshly friends, why would they run to us? We don't look any different. And that's another part of holiness. We look different than the rebellious world looks like. So my question now is, holiness now doesn't look so scary anymore, does it? Right? And again, those, if you've been a believer for a few years, that word might scare you. What does that mean? Is God going to make me sell everything and uh, be a, a missionary to Indonesia or something like that? That's a scary word to some, but when we start to understand what holiness really means, wow, then we all say, gee, I would like a little bit of that. And hopefully I've, I've, I've gotten to the point where in discussing that, you feel that way. So the second result of a born-again believer's life, we'll move on, is reverence as a result of redemption. Verse 17. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here, in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So last week, none of the equipment worked, and this week, my voice isn't working so well, so uh, bear with me. Uh, verse 17 through 21, if we call on the Father, well, we would only call on the Father if he truly is our God, right? Then we ought to live in reverence of him. God, who is a fair judge, will hold his children accountable for our actions and be faithful to discipline us when we go astray and when we sin and really when we set a poor example for him. Oh, he'll be faithful because now we're reflecting him. It's not going to go on for a long time. He's going to deal with it. Uh, Sometimes we don't think it's fast enough, but uh, he definitely does. First John told us that if we claim to have a relationship with God and we're walking in darkness or we don't live a life based on his word, John says we're a liar. So it's better to live a life that honors God out of reverence and love for him than to learn hard lessons from his discipline. And the perspective here is we are sojourners or we're pilgrims, we're passing through. We covered that last Sunday in fear or reverence. When we're done passing through, we'll be spending eternity, eternity in our permanent homes. That's, that's for sure. Now, when you look at this, it kind of brings us back to the um, idea of the Old Testament Jews, the children of Israel, right? They uh, were the chosen people, right? They uh, sojourned in foreign lands. They were uh, captured often uh, through the uh, wars, right? The Assyrians and the, uh, the Babylonians, the Persians. And they would often be expatriated to other countries. So they were dispersed. But they were sojourning in that country, knowing eventually that God was going to eventually rebuild the temple, his holy place, and that they should all come back. But what happened with the Old Testament Jews in a lot of ways was they got so comfortable with, hey, this is, I'm, I'm really liking Babylon here. I really like Persia. They didn't want to go back and help to rebuild you know, God's city and, and his, uh, his temple. So they actually got very comfortable where they were sojourning. But we can also make the application today. We as believers, you know, I've been alive for 42 years. I probably make the erroneous assumption that I'm going to go to sleep tonight, wake up again, 
but I don't, I don't have that guarantee. And we start to do, make plans, and we should, for our lives. We should work and feed our families. And then over time, what happens is we get so comfortable here that we don't realize that we're citizens of heaven. See, that's important. You know, do not love the things of the world, otherwise the Father's love is not in you. Now, listen, I like life's milestones too. You know, my son is 11 years old. He still has chubby cheeks. I still squeeze his face and kiss those cheeks. And I'm sure that's going to be a problem when he's 20. <laughs> but the point is that, um, you know, I'm looking forward to him to get married. I'm really looking forward to him to preach the word or, you know, to learn the Bible and teach it. That would be awesome for me. But heck, if the Lord comes back tomorrow, hey, I'm cool with his plan. You see, when we don't understand God and we don't have a relationship with God up there in the balcony, pay attention. Okay, when we don't have a relationship with God, what we think is that God is out there to spoil our fun. We think he's the cosmic killjoy. We think he's out there to give us a hard time and ruin our lives and take every bit of fun that we have away from us. But, and I got to tell you, as an immature believer, I might have believed that in some respects too. However, over time, you know, I would never, I would never have it any other way. Because when he does make us holy and sanctify us and mature us, it is a blessing to us. Let me tell you something. It's a blessing to be there for somebody else who's completely uh, despondent and, and help to just listen to them and just lift them up in their time of need. Or go into the, uh, the homeless shelter and, uh, you know, they look at a clean pair of socks like it was gold bullion. You know, some actually will take a clean pair of socks and stuff it in their pocket and go, can I have a pair of socks? You know what I'm saying? But, uh, you know, that is a, a feeling like no other, you know, because God designed us to be other-centered. God designed us to reflect Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So the point is how we feel about God and what we think about God will have a major impact on our behavior. And this goes back to, to that reverence. Many don't revere him and have no worries while engaging in sin, right? Verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. Back then, understand this, to be redeemed in those days, and this is something that we can't understand in our generation in the United States, except maybe in history book. But in the Roman Empire, it just was economic. No matter who they conquered, they would take the strong men and they would enslave them. Even in the time of Israel, uh, it was more of like an indentured servitude. If you owed another family money that you couldn't pay back, you would uh, sell yourself for a time into slavery or servanthood until you paid back that debt. Now, many times, the debt was so high that you couldn't get yourself out of that servanthood. So what happened was somebody would have to come along, usually a, a near kin, and we see this in the book of Ruth, right? Uh, and pay silver or gold to get you out of that debt and redeem you to freedom. Now, of course, he's talking about spiritual things. Basically, we are born with a sin nature that enslaves us. And there are some that fancy if I do good works over bad works or um, you know, different things for God to accept them. But the only way to get out of that is not with gold and silver, but by the, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Now, this is an interesting verse because he says, from, he says, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. A better or a clearer translation would be, redeemed from our feudal lifestyles going nowhere, passed down from our ancestors. So there are many in, in the world that they look at what their parents did or their community or their family or their friends. Hey, they've always done that. 
that's what I'm going to do. Maybe tradition. A lot of religions have tradition. And they think that's what's going to get them in a right standing with God. But it's not true. You see, that's man's way to heaven. That's what Babel did, the Tower of Babel. They didn't want to go through God's way to get to him, but they wanted to attain heaven by building. And you should see there's still some of these ziggurats in the desert. It's amazing, these structures they built thousands of years ago that uh, just keep winding higher and higher. Uh, the architecture was impressive, but they weren't going to get to heaven, and God destroyed their, uh, their building project. So the only way we can attain the spiritual is not by way of the natural. You see, for us to get to heaven, for us to get to God, there's a great chasm. There's a great gulf that we can't cross. The only way we can cross that is with the cross of Christ. Okay, it's the only way. And I have to say this, that, um, you know, I, I look at this from the aimless uh, way of life, from your passed down by your forefathers. You know, I lived, you know, on the other side of the fence. I've mentioned this many times. I grew up and uh, whatever. I mean, it was my own sin, but I lived a life not knowing God. And uh, when I became a born-again believer, I started to kind of shed some of my old ways. But because I wasn't following the tradition of my family, you're Italian, you, you've, you know, the Italian families, you know, you got the whole rolling the eyes thing. Uh, but the point is that, you know, you, you have to do it this way, and this is the way we've always done it. Yeah, but you didn't care when I was doing nutty things, almost killing myself half the time. But I become born-again Christian, and you have a problem with that. You see, it's a spiritual issue. The aimless conduct of the tradition of my forefathers did nothing for me. It was only until I became born again that I had that entrance into eternal life. And it's cool because a lot of my family now has uh, understood and they, they are saved. But verse 20, we see this uh, plan of Christ going to the cross. He says, foreordained before the uh, foundation of the world. God knew that man was going to rebel. God knew that man was going to sin. It didn't shock him. He didn't have a meeting with his leadership and say, man, there's something coming down the pike that we weren't prepared for. Before the foundation of the world, in God's foreknowledge, he ordained the, his son to go to the cross to die for our sins. Now, we might ask the question, if God knew that we were going to do this, why did he even make us? Or why did he, why did he wipe us out? And the answer is because God loves you. Every, every single person here individually God loves you and even though there's about six billion seven billion people on the planet he can have a relationship with you individually that's pretty amazing so this whole uh, idea of of the foreordination of the cross was because of love right and he's not going to force us this is what true love looks like to allow us to go with that um, volition as free moral agents and make that decision whether to respond to his love and be re-reconciled or to be in rebellion against him. It's our choice. There's actually a doctrine <clears throat> called irresistible grace where God forces his grace upon uh, people, his elect. The problem with that doctrine is, number one, uh, Stephen, one of the first Christian martyrs, when he was being stoned to death, said to the religious leaders, you stiff-necked naked people. He goes, you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. So they resisted the Holy Spirit. A lot of them didn't get saved. That's another example when Jesus uh, lamented over Jerusalem. He said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I wanted to cover you as a, a hen covers her chicks, but you were not willing. So there are those that have resisted the Holy Spirit. There are those that have resist, resisted Jesus. It is a choice that we make, right? And he says, manifested, Jesus Christ manifested 
in these last times. And these last times are really between Christ's first coming and his second coming. So manifested meaning revealed, understood in these last days. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 1, 2 says that in diverse times and times past, God spoke to the, to, to the forefathers through uh, the prophets. But in these last days, he speaks to us through his son. His son, Jesus Christ, the Lagos. That's why he is the word of God. Okay? So it's important to understand there. And verse 21, thanks to Christ's sacrifice and our reception of it, our faith and hope can now be in God. Well, what does that mean? Your faith and hope is in God. Wasn't it always? No. If we didn't know the Lord beforehand and we didn't have a relationship with him, your faith and hope could be in yourself. It could be in the world. It could be in your bank account. But now we have the honor and the privilege of having our faith and hope in God. Right? Talk about a, a real lifeline going on there. Um, it goes right to the throne room of heaven. A few more thoughts on reverence. I know I've noticed this, um, and I've heard different Christian leaders talk about the cycles of generations. We've seen this in the children of Israel, and sometimes we've even seen it in America. You know, our grandparents and great-grandparents struggled through the Great Depression and World War I, World War II, and uh, in their desire to give us a better life, maybe they spoiled us a little bit, maybe we spoiled our kids a little bit. But the point I'm trying to make here is that there was a, a, a reverence uh, back then that I think in successive generations we're starting to lose that reverence, that respect, that fear. You know, wh how, how many people here would raise their hand and say, yeah, flippantly, I, if I stood before God right now, I wouldn't have a problem with that. That's crazy. You know, I actually heard that uh, this week, but, uh, you know, it's pretty rough. And, and it's, it's, it's just the foolishness. It's an ignorance. Um, you know, we, there are those that used to say, God is the man upstairs. And you may say, it's, it's, it's innocent. He's the man upstairs. But he's not the man upstairs. He is a living God, creator of everything that we see. Um, and there are even some that, uh, to try to win the youth, they'll use words from the pulpit that are maybe uh, with sexual innuendo because they think that that's the way to, to win the youth. I've heard pastors uh, from the pulpit say friggin like multiple times and I'm only saying that to give you an example uh, and you know it's this this idea now to win the youth to win the younger generation well I got to tell you something if you want to win the youth by reducing God down to my level I'm not for it I'm not into it no way to make it more palatable let me just ask the youth a question for those of you who are in your teens and in your early 20s can you raise your hand raise your hand cool brave people um, I have a question for you. Would you prefer for me, okay, to help you to understand the things of God? Would you prefer that I dress like you, try to talk like you, probably make a fool of myself at 42, um, to say crude words so you can say, hey man, that guy's cool? Or youth, would you prefer that I just told you the truth? Do you want to hear the truth or do you want to see me come up here and, and pretend that I'm your age? Just call it out. I didn't pay them beforehand. I just want you to know that. And when I do stuff like that, I always, I always run a risk, but it turned out pretty good. Thank you. So um, that's, that's a word there. And it's really cool because I, I kind of put the message together, and then I remembered that the Rock Christian Fellowship was coming up here. And these guys are just excited uh, they, they just want to, you know, they're a bunch of young guys and, and they're, they're sold out for the Lord. They carry their Bibles. You know, they're not embarrassed by being holy 
and going in there. And let me just tell you one quick story that I heard that I know these guys are so humble that they won't tell. Uh, they went into gang territory, okay? And uh, they, the leaders of the gang stood up on a hill. These guys are pretty sharp. And they were watching in a remote location what the Christians were doing with their people. And the leaders were up on the hill and they watched the interaction. They purposely sent some young ladies very attractive young ladies into the mix of the guys to see what their reaction would be. Well, after about an hour or so, the, uh, the gang leaders came down off the hill and said, you're the real deal, we want to hear about Jesus. They purposely put those women in there to flirt with them and be bait, and these guys didn't take the bait. That's holiness. And that is what attracted the gang leaders. He's like, you guys are the real deal. Now we're ready to put our guards down and hear about who Jesus Christ is. So now, holiness, it's, it's, it's getting better and better. If you didn't know what holiness is coming into this church today, now you're really sold on this concept. It's a great thing. So, um, the third point here is, is uh, dependence on the Lord and interde interdependence among brethren. It's, the, um, it's really the last section that we have here. So the dependence, we depend on the Lord. He is our head. And the interdependence among each other, we are the body of Christ. We work together as the body. So you see a, a vertical and a horizontal relationship there. Verse 22, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because, he quotes Isaiah 40 here, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So we're born, we're born again, we're purified, or we're made holy through obeying the truth through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? Uh, now this is important because the word love is used twice here. The first time the word is Philadelphia and not in Pennsylvania. Philadelphia literally means brotherly love. It actually was named the city of brotherly love. Well, I think things have changed over the years. Uh, and then you, you've got that phileo love, that brotherly type of love. But the other word that's used, so the, he said Philadelphia and agape, which is that higher, that, that, um, that divine love. And we know there's some crossover between both Greek words, but he uses modifiers and adjectives with agape to really strengthen that, if it could even be strengthened, right? So I'm going to come back to that. We purify our souls, and there's a mind component here. We change our thinking. We change our lifestyles. And this is a macrocosmic view. It's a big picture. It's not just about me, right? And we're, we're different because we know spiritual things. Now, that's opposed to having a microcosmic view. It's all about me. You understand? So when we love others, we kind of come out of ourselves and we start to love others and realize that all the decisions we make, all the things that we do, it's not, I don't work as, as one person. We work as a unit and we're interdependent on each other. And when one falls, we try to lift them up and aid them and encourage them. And I love verse 23. He says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Another proof text with God's word having regenerative power. Now, when I was um, <clears throat> doing the service this week for the, that tragedy, I met a young girl in her 20s, and we had a discussion. And she said, 
I listened to your service. She said, I liked it, but it made me angry. I said, really? She goes, well, you know, why does it all have to be about Jesus? It's about these people who passed on. I said, from their perspective, they know it's all about Jesus. I said, you're looking at things from a very small sliver from your perspective. But she, she actually smiled, and, and I actually drew it out of her that she got angry. She wanted to be polite. And I said, it's good that you're angry because it shows that God's word is working on you. If it can cause you to react that emotionally in a negative sense, it, it, it's trying to reach you and you're fighting it, you're rebelling against it. So it was kind of neat because she was um, kind of loving it but kind of hating it at the same time. But it did, I said, it's doing something in you. I said, and you, know, you, you need to not fight it and let it work in your heart, right? Verse 24. Uh, he's quoting Isaiah 40. He starts with, you know, all flesh is as grass, um, and the, the flower, uh, the grass withers and the flower falls away. I tell you what, there is nothing more appropriate than what's been going on in New Jersey over the last three or four weeks. You know, unless I don't have a sprinkler system, so I pull up to my driveway, everything's dying. I mean, the grass is all yellow and it looks terrible. The only thing that's surviving are the weeds, you know. But, uh,. <laughs> You know, the flower garden, the vegetable garden, you know, everything's just kind of dried out. It's not juicy. Uh, my poor wife is out there hours trying to hose everything down to keep it going. But man, without the rain, you know, everything just starts to wither and fade away. Uh, so we can see that in, in a real life application. Now I'll say this. Let me switch to the spiritual uh, sense. And this is what I try to impress to young people. I've been a police officer for 18 years on the road. I always love being assigned to patrol. And I can tell you that I've met educated people, uh, poor people, uh, well-known people, famous people. Um, I actually arrested a famous uh, rock singer once. Uh, it was interesting. But, you know, I've seen all types of people, strong, beautiful, but they all die, right? 10 out of 10 people die, survey says, right? <laughs> And, and I'm just going to say this. Um, I remember one uh, a young lady I was talking to, I, I shook her hand and I held her hand tightly and I looked intently into her eyes. I said, I've seen people your age, you know, just cut to pieces in car accidents, missing body parts. You know, I try to get their attention. You're young. That's great. You think you're invincible, but you're not. You're not. All right. People are losing their lives and death takes no pardons. It, it takes no bribes. When it's your turn, it's coming for you. So I just want you to know that this is true. And I will tell you about me. I thought I was invincible when I was younger. And then the Lord allowed me to go through something, my own personal tragedy. And he didn't let me out of it until he made sure I understood as if he was shaking my hand and looking me into my eyes and saying, you are frail and brittle and you are weak. You need to understand that. And once you understand that and you rely on me, we're going to start going up again. And I've never forgotten that. Right? I don't care what you think about your abilities, your education level, whatever it is, you are weak. You know, those two young women, 25 and 28, who'd have thought? You know, and uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's just, it does something to me inside because I, I've seen it firsthand and I almost would like it if I could download what's in my head and do it to somebody else, kind of like that Vulcan trick in Star Wars, uh, Star Trek. And just let them see what I've seen over the last 18 years. So this is serious business. There's the perishable. We live in the perishable world. And then there's the eternal. And you can be a part of that. I'm throwing you a lifeline. But you need to take a hold of that lifeline. Okay? 
verse 25. <clears throat> first part. And they cut it up into two parts. And then we're going to finish. This is our last verse. But there's always hope. The word of the Lord endures forever. Back to the eternal. What world do you want to put your trust into? Don't put all your eggs into this basket. It's a mistake. So the question is, now what? Peter, in the first part of the chapter, he told us about our faith. In the second part, he told us how we should live. We should, you know, we should strive for holiness, reverence, dependence, and loving one another. If you take 1 Peter, which we did, or we're doing 1 John and James, which we did, and go through that, and, and talk about that tragedy that I spoke about before the service started. Um, let's look at some of these uh, scriptures. In James 2, uh, James said, If you see a brother or a sister destitute and naked and hungry, and you say, be warm and filled, and I'm paraphrasing, but not by me, I'm too busy, um, your faith without works is dead. In James 4.17, he says, To him who knows to do good, has the means, and does not do it, to him it is sin. It is the sin of omission. How do we, you know, how do you look at somebody struggling and really suffering and not offer something or at least your time? First John 3 says, whoever has this world's goods and sees a brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? And the answer is it doesn't. Jesus said, the world will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. Did the world see, did Jamesburg see the love that we had for these two ladies that passed. I believe they did. I believe they did. You know, and, and they are one of our own. And Jesus said that when the world looks in and we take care of one of our own and they see the love that we have for each other, they're going to say, gee, I'd like to be a part of that because people are won over by love. God wins people over by love. Others are won over by your love. Okay? I don't care what anybody tells you. It's love that wins someone over. So, um, when they see that, if, we, if they saw that we didn't love each other, they would say, gee, I don't want to be a part of that if they can't love each other. So I got to say this, though, that some believers stay in Philadelphia. And again, I don't mean Pennsylvania. They stay in that brotherly love, but they never make it to that agape love. And when we don't do that, we rip ourselves off, right? When tragedy strikes, God will put us to the test and to see that what we've learned from God, if we can apply it to our lives, I love God, many say. The Bible says prove it. Many books tell much about justification before God, and that's good. But James and 1 John speak a lot about the evidence of salvation, that evidence before men. Right? And I just, I just want to say that I'm, I'm blessed, and I was blown away by uh, all the, the phone calls and the offers to help and, uh, you know, for this, this situation. That was a good thing. So let me read the last part of verse 25. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. And that, in the end, that's what it's all about. So that's what it's all about. It's about people. It's about loving others. It's about preaching the gospel. It's about the message of salvation. I remember that when we had done the, the repast, I had gotten our, our, our people together and I said, you know what? Don't just help people physically. Be there and be spiritually sensitive in case there's someone who's heard the gospel which they heard at the wake and the funeral, and that they're uh, looking to open their heart and learn more about God and salvation. So be spiritually sensitive to that because this is the good news. This is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. And in the end, it's all about the gospel. 
It's all about facilitating bringing as many persons as possible into the kingdom. Let's pray.